Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Monday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. Okay, it's Monday, a new week, and a new opportunity for me to try to be consistent with a morning show. <laughs> uh, guess what else it is? It's a new week for me to consistently bring you a great deal every morning from Palmetto State Armory. And you know, it's AK Monday. So I got to share this gorgeous PSAK 47 GF3 with Soviet Arms railed gas tube and tree bark furniture. Y'all, it is so pretty and it's only $899.99. The link to check it out is in my show description and I cannot stress enough how pretty this gun is, like how good it looks. Um, Again, link is in the show description. Please go check it out. If nothing else, then just to look at it and admire its beauty. If you're going to get it, you better get it sooner rather than later, or your local FFL may not exist for you to have it shipped to you. First, I'll give you the story, then I'll give you my anecdotal experience on Friday. Gun dealers are crying foul as the Biden administration pursues an apparent crackdown on legal firearm sellers whose licenses have been revoked at an unprecedented rate over the last two years. This policy is designed to be a backdoor violation of the Second Amendment. Uh, The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as the ATF or BAFTA for some people, has taken away the licenses of 122 gun dealers since October. That's up from only 27 revocations in all of fiscal year 2021. That's a 350% increase in the first nine months of this fiscal year alone. Dealers complain that many of the violations leading to the loss of their businesses amount to little more than paperwork errors. Like maybe I got a date wrong. Maybe I checked that box uh, where you didn't put the actual rest of the question until the second box. You know, that kind of stuff. I apologize. Navarro, who is a gentleman who lost his license, said that he informed the ATF immediately when he found the lax employee had been mishandling buyer's purchase documents. He lost his license as a result. Leslie Gifford of Burkington, Kansas, who legally sold guns as a sideline for more than 30 years, had his license pulled for selling a firearm to a concealed carry holder from Nebraska who should have been shopping in his own home state. Mr. Biden wants to get rid of all of us little dealers. In a recently filed lawsuit, North Dakota gun store Bridge City Ordinance alleged that the ATF's newly strict inspection policy is being wielded as a political weapon. But... The Biden administration's approach could backfire. Uh, How, you ask? Well, as gun dealers threaten, 
to stop informing federal authorities about suspicious buyers in retaliation. The gun dealers were our first line of defense against gun trafficking. Uh, Peter Fercelli, which is a retired ATF assistant director, why are we now beating an ally into submission? Gun control advocates cheered the clampdown. Of course they do. They love the state. And I guess, if nothing else, I only hope that I live long enough to see their faces when they're lined up against the wall like the rest of us because their political worth has expired. We've taken steps to hold accountable those few dealers who are engaging in these willful violations. That word is notable. Uh, That was said by Steve Dettelbach. Oh, God, even his name is pretentious. They're not going to have the privilege of being a gun dealer anymore. They want to make it as hard on the average American as possible to purchase a firearm. They want your nearest FFL to be hundreds of miles away so that you can't and won't arm yourself anymore. Do you guys hear that? 3D printers going Anecdotally, I went to pick up a firearm from my local FFL on Friday. I was going to use the opportunity to educate the public on the process and maybe crack a joke along the way. You guys know me. Uh, Namely, I was going to walk the viewer through the process of an FFL transfer where you have to complete a 4473. They have to call it in, run the background check on you sign the firearm over to you. Then I was going to go to a gas station and throw a candy bar on the counter and ask them, wait, you don't need my driver's license? Is there paperwork I need to fill out? Do you need me to answer any questions? Do you need to call someone and verify whether or not I'm allowed to purchase this candy bar? Which really would have been hilarious. But he informed me that he would not allow me to film the process. And He asked that I don't even share the name of his shop on my show because he's genuinely afraid of backlash and proceeded to tell me that we've lost three FFLs just in the last month. I don't know the names or have any way of verifying his statement, but he was pretty spooked. Um, He said he just wants to stay under the radar and not draw attention to himself because his license is his livelihood. I I have another friend who is an FFL in another state. I'm not going to tell his story because he's fighting to keep his license at this moment. But, I mean, this is happening all over the country. It is a concerted effort to remove your right to keep and bear arms by removing your ability to access one. All we can do as citizens at this point is sit back and hope that Firearms Policy Coalition has cases waiting in the wing that forces the Supreme Court to rein in the ATF or make them a non-existent federal agency. Um, In the meantime, we just have to sit and comply, sit on our hands, can't do anything about it. But you can change the vote process in, well, you can't change the process, but you can change who you vote for. Um, And and that is a surefire way uh, you can get rid of Mr. Dettelbach. Speaking of governmental overreach, I don't know if the tree-hugging climate activists realized that their forceful push to make everyone drive electric vehicles 
was going to negatively impact them eventually, but their day of reckoning is upon us. The landscape of road taxation is shifting as Oregon and Utah take innovative steps to address the unique challenge posed by electric vehicles. In an effort to fairly fund road maintenance, these states are introducing GPS trackers for electric vehicles aiming to track miles driven and consequently impose a per-mile tax. I told you all it was coming. It's no surprise that this move has sparked debates about privacy concerns and the expanding role of technology in governance. Man, it's really interesting to see those same people who are wanting the government to follow and track and be in every single part of your life if you don't politically agree with them. Now they're taking issue with that. The rationale behind this change is twofold. With the electric vehicles eschewing traditional gasoline consumption, the revenue generated from gasoline taxes, which is typically used for road maintenance, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, just kidding, faces a decline. In response, Oregon and Utah are piloting programs to ensure that electric vehicle owners contribute to maintaining the roads that they use. Michigan is also contemplating a similar road usage charge system. Oregon's OREGO program encourages volunteers to sign up for a system where they pay a fee based on the miles they drive on the public roads, while around 700 participants have joined the program. Uptake has been limited. Participants can either manually report their mileage or employ GPS devices to monitor their travel. Utah, however, has gone a step farther by mandating GPS trackers for every electric vehicle. With roads funded through gasoline sales tax, the state is adapting the rising number of fuel-efficient and electric vehicles. Under Utah's system, electric vehicle drivers are charged approximately one penny per mile, which is deducted from a prepaid wallet. The DriveSync app, integral to this system, offers trip tracking and driving reports, even including a driving coach feature that assesses driving behavior. Huh, this is funny to me. Also, I'm going to stay based on the state I live in and the roads around here. They are not allocating those gasoline tax dollars to that, but this is going to be fun to watch them all get pissed off. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Chinese officials have confirmed cases of the bubonic plague in the country, raising the total case count to three this year. Um, A family in Inner Mongolia, a province in the northeastern part of the Asian nation that borders Mongolia and Russia, has come down with the deadly infection. On August 7th, officials detected a case in an unnamed woman in the region. Last week, the woman's husband and daughter were infected. The current condition of the family is unclear. Um, It's China. Who knows what happened to that family? Close contacts to the family have been quarantined and have not displayed symptoms. Also known as the Black Death, the bubonic plague is a devastating disease, most well known for a massive outbreak across Europe 
in the mid-1300s. It's estimated that the disease killed somewhere between 30 and 60% of all Europeans as it rampaged across the continent. It is the most common of the three forms of the plague, though all are relatively rare. The CDC reports that around seven plague cases are recorded in the United States each year. The World Health Organization says well over 2,000 cases appear globally each year, often in rural and lower-income parts of the world. You know, the ones that have to live with the rats. Um, generally, it spreads um, via fleas who bite rodents, and then they carry it to a human that they bite. However, in some cases, a person who eats an infected rodent will fall ill themselves. It also contain it's also contagious between humans, which spreads via respiratory droplets in the air. It takes between two and eight days for symptoms to appear. After exposure during this time, the bacteria will travel through the body until it reaches the lymph nodes in the neck where it will infect a person and then proliferate across the entire body. The bubonic plague infections are most well-known for the blackening of the skin that can occur across the body of an infected person. It's caused by necrosis of the body tissue. Other symptoms are high fever, chills, cramps, seizures. Once a near-death sentence, the mortality rate of the plague is now only 11% in the United States as treatments have improved. You know, just dropping this story in case the next round of COVID lockdowns that they're pushing really hard aren't successful, you can have an idea of what they're going to throw at you next. Okay, speaking of China, U.S. meat and food U.S. meat and processed food maker Tyson Foods is planning to sell its China poultry business. The company has hired Goldman Sachs to advise on the sale and sent preliminary information to potential buyers, including a number of private equity firms, said to people adding the sale process was at an early stage. While it was not immediately clear what valuation Tyson Foods is seeking for the China poultry business, has annual sales of about $1.1 billion, one of the people said. We don't know which people said that. Springdale, Arkansas-based Tyson Foods and Goldman Sachs declined to comment. The sources who did not say why Tyson is planning to sell the business declined to be identified because the information was confidential. Why are you sharing it if it's confidential? Just asking. Tyson said this month it was evaluating all operations and closing four more U.S. chicken plants in the last latest bid, I apologize, to reduce cost after its third quarter revenue and profit missed Wall Street expectations. China's meat market has become increasingly challenging, with livestock farm margins squeezed in the last two years due to weak demand during the COVID-19 pandemic and increased feed prices because of the Russia-Ukraine war. A string of multinational firms have divested their China businesses or paired their holdings in the last few years as some found it hard to reap desired profits amid the country's slower economic growth. 
strong local competition or geopolitical headwinds, according to bankers. Foreign companies have divested a combined $8.4 billion of Chinese assets across all sectors so far this year, following $13.5 billion of disposals in 2022. Geologic data showed Tyson Foods opened its first factory in China in 2001 and now has four research and development centers, several processing plants, and dozens of breeding farms in the country, according to its website for China Operations. It operates throughout the industry chain in China, from breeding and slaughtering to processing and distribution, providing chicken, beef, pork, and processed foods. The company in June launched a new factory focusing on processed foods, such as cooked chicken, pre-made Chinese cuisine in the eastern Chinese city of Nantong, and another that focuses on frozen and heat-processed foods in central Chinese city of Xiaogan. The website says Tyson Foods reported $39.5 billion in total sales for the nine months ending in July 1st, of which $1.9 billion was from the international and other business segment that includes its China operations. Just as Joe Biden's awful foreign policy decision secures a whopping $6 billion for Iran, you know, the same country that Barack Obama sent a plane in the dead of night with pallets of $400 million cash money, the one that yells death to America every chance they get, well, footage has emerged of a U.S. warship being swarmed by Iranian drones and speedboats. The confrontation between the helicopter carrier and Iran's navy took place in the Strait of Hormuz. Hormuz? 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 I don't know how to say that. In the Persian Gulf. We're just going to say the Persian Gulf. Um, The U.S. Navy arrived in the Middle East last week to support deterrence efforts in the Strait, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, released the footage on Saturday of the USS Bataan assault ship passing through the strait, accompanied by choppers. The boat was also accompanied by the USS Carter Hall land docking ship with 4,000 troops aboard them. Iranian media claims that the IRGC's provocative moves forced the U.S. helicopters to land back on the carrier shortly after taking off by sending warnings, drones, and speedboats. Washington has not yet commented on the event. Tell me how surprised you are by that. Shocking pictures show Iranian vessels nail-bitingly close to the huge U.S. warship while drones helped to harass the ship and snap footage right above it. The U.S. has been beefing up its military presence in the region as Iranian seizures threaten oil tankers plying the Gulf, a move that's been long demanded by Gulf Arab states who accused Washington of retreating from area. The moves follow a spate of capture and attempted capture of ships in and around the Strait. The U-shaped gateway of the Gulf of Oman and the Arabian Sea that carries a fifth of the world's oil output. 
the U.S. military says Iran has either seized or attempted to take nearly 20 internationally flagged ships in the region in the last two years. There's a heightened threat, a heightened risk to regional mariners in terms of seizures by Iran in the strait, said Commander Tim Hawkins, who is a spokesperson for the U.S.'s Navy 5th Fleet. Right now, our focus is on increasing our presence in and near the strait to ensure security and stability in a very critical waterway. Earlier this month, Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder revealed, quote, Our hope would be that the trend will downward. Be that the trend will down. That doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, but ultimately, (laughs) that's up to Iran. I think I probably typed that wrong. In the meantime, we're going to do everything we can to ensure the safety and security in the region and the continued ability of commerce to transit the strait unimpeded. Iran has hit back recently at the increasing U.S. deployment of ships in the strait. A chief diplomat argued the region doesn't need foreigners providing security. You know who does need security, though? Queen's Greatest Hits Collection, apparently. They, whomever they is, removed one of Queen's most beloved songs. Fat Bottom Girls, from their collection. The 1978 track, which was written by guitarist Brian May, has been enjoyed by generations of fans as a humorous and hard-rocking tribute to a young man's appreciation of fuller-figured ladies. But 45 years later, it appears that lyrics such as Left Alone with Big Fat Fanny, She Was Such a Naughty Nanny, Big woman, you made a bad boy out of me. I never thought I would sing the words to that song on my show, but here we are. And Fat Bottom Girls, you make the rockin' world go round, have been hit by the woke cancel culture. It was such a popular hit for Queen that it appeared fourth on the band's original 1981 Greatest Hits album, along with Bohemian Rhapsody, Don't Stop Me Now, And we will rock you. But last week, it was nowhere to be seen when Universal Records announced, that's who they are, by the way, announced that they (laughs) would be releasing a version of the record on Yotu, Yoto, Yotu, the new audio platform aimed at young people. (laughs) That's why I have no fucking clue what it is. The move has left the music industry insiders bemused, with bosses insisting that Fat Bottom Girls was wrongly being singled out as it's merely a bit of fun. It is the talk of the music industry because nobody can work out why such a good-natured, fun song cannot be acceptable in today's society. It's woke gone mad. Why not appreciate people of all shapes and sizes like society is saying we should rather than get rid of it? It's outrageous. Fat Bottom Girls has long sparked debate about the suitability of its lyrics and the promotional material that accompanied the release. If you've never seen the album cover for this song, like for this single, the original sleeve, which was taken from Queen's album Jazz, featured a female who was on a bicycle, quite scantily clad, mind you, Um, But it was altered after some stores refused to stock it. Cancel culture has been around for a hot minute on this song, apparently. 
the new version was the same image with uh, knickers drawn over the woman. Uh, May told Mojo Magazine in 2008, I wrote it with Fred in mind, as you do, especially if you've got a great singer who likes fat bottom girls or boys. The newly released U2 Yo2 Greatest Hits album released in collaboration with Queen's record label Universal, is aimed at introducing the band to a younger audience. First, they came for Baby It's Cold Outside, and I said nothing. Then, they came for Brown Sugar, and I said nothing. Now, they're coming for Fat Bottom Girls, and I've said nothing. But when they take away Baby Got Back, it will be too late. Do you guys remember that small Kansas newspaper that got raided by the police? And I said, hey, this is a pretty big deal because we have this thing called the First Amendment. Well, the police chief who led the raid alleged in previously unreleased court documents that a reporter either impersonated someone else or lied about her intentions when she obtained the driving records of a local business owner. But reporter Phyllis Zorn Marion County Record Editor and publisher Eric Meyer said the newspaper's attorney said on Sunday that no laws were broken when Zorn accessed a public state website for information on restaurant operator Carrie Newell. The raid carried out on August 11th and led by Marion Police Chief Gideon Cody brought international attention to the very small central Kansas town that now finds itself at the center of a debate over press freedoms. Police seized computers, personal cell phones, a router from the newspaper, but all items were released on Wednesday after the county prosecutor concluded there's not enough evidence to justify the police's actions. The newspaper was acting on a tip They checked the public website of the Kansas Department of Revenue for the status of Newell's driver's license as it related to a 2008 conviction of drunk driving. Cody wrote in the affidavit that the Department of Revenue told him that those who downloaded the information were record reporter Phyllis Zorn and someone using the name Carrie Newell. Cody wrote that he contacted Newell, who said someone obviously stole her identity. As a result, Cody wrote, downloading the document involved either impersonating the victim or lying about the reasons why the record was being sought. The license records are normally confidential under state law, but can be accessed under certain circumstances, cited in the affidavit. The online user can request their own records but must provide a driver's license number and a date of birth. The records may also be provided in other instances, such as to lawyers for use in a legal matter, for insurance claim investigations, and for research projects about statistical reports with the caveat that the personal information won't be disclosed. Meyer said Zorn actually contacted the Department of Revenue before her online search and was instructed how to search records. Zorn asked to respond to the allegations that she used Newell's name to obtain her personal information, said, quote, my response is 
Then I went to a Kansas Department of Revenue website, and that's where I got the information. What is this? Taylor Lorenz's alter ego? I did nothing wrong. I pretended to be the victim? Uh, Rhodes, the newspaper's attorney, said Zorn's actions were legal under both state and federal laws. Using the subject's name is not identity theft. That's just the way of accessing the person's record. The newspaper had Newell's driver's license number and date of birth because a source provided it. Unsolicited, Meyer said. Ultimately, the record decided not to write about Newell's record. But when she revealed at a subsequent city council meeting that she had driven while her license was suspended, that was reported. The investigation into whether the newspaper broke state laws continues, now led by the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. The state's attorney general, Chris Kobach, said that he doesn't see the Bureau's role as investigating the conduct of the police. Some legal experts believe that the raid violated a federal privacy law that protects journalists from having their newsrooms searched. Some also believe it violated a Kansas law that makes it more difficult to force reporters and editors to disclose their sources or unpublished material. Cody has not responded to several requests for comment, including an email request on Sunday. He defended the raid in a Facebook post soon after it happened, saying, The federal law shielding journalists from newsroom searches makes an exception specifically for, quote, when there is a reason to believe the journalist is taking part in the underlying wrongdoing. The record received an outpouring of support from other news organizations and media groups after the raid. Meyer said it has picked up at least 4,000 subscribers, enough to double the size of its press run, though many of the new subscriptions are digital. Meyer blamed the stress from the raid on the death of his 98-year-old mother, Joan Meyer, the paper's co-owner. Her funeral services were held on Saturday. This presents an interesting case. I'm a First Amendment absolutist, but there is a line between ethical and unethical acquisition of the information that you intend to publicly share. How far does your First Amendment right protection exceed that line of ethics? I think that this would be a great debate for us to have on a Liberty Happy Hour on Friday. Compounding natural disasters spurred on by extreme weather may lead FEMA to be completely depleted in the next weeks. Uh, Administrator Deanne Criswell says, Criswell said, the disaster fund is projected to run dry in mid-September, but the situation is day-to-day. No wonder Joe Biden could only commit $700 per destroyed home in Hawaii. And as we get closer to that September date, I mean, this is a day-by-day monitoring of the situation. We will start to move some of our recovery projects and delay them until next fiscal year. When asked what FEMA would do in the event of a government shutdown, Chriswell said FEMA will continue to push projects into the next fiscal year 
so it can continue to respond to disasters immediately. We will take measures to ensure there is always going to be enough funding to continue to support immediate responses to these types of severe weather events. The projections come as Tropical Storm Hillary reaches Mexico's Baja California Peninsula and heads toward Southern California, where it may drop up to four inches of rain per hour, causing flash flooding. There have been 15 weather-related or climate disaster events. Their language, not mine. That caused more than $1 billion in damage this year, prior to August 8th. The combined disaster cost is more than $39 billion. Last week, the Biden administration requested $12 billion to fund FEMA as it undertakes recovery efforts related to multiple natural disasters. Chriswell said the agency's response to crises will not be impacted despite the House and Senate being in recess until after Labor Day. That is your Monday edition of everything yesterday this morning. I hope you guys had a great weekend. Again, please be sure to go check out that AK-47 for AK Monday at the link in the show description. I look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow. You take care and have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.